John chapter 18, verses 1 to 27. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. Because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once... A rooster crowed. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You have probably read stories, either historical novels or even history itself, some sort of fiction or nonfiction that is a narrative, and found that the authors use a technique to build suspense and to keep you going. And what they do is they alternate in the different chapters or sections between 
two stories or perhaps among various stories. And so they have a chapter carrying the narrative forward and then they stop. And then they pick up another section of another scene somewhere else with other characters and then they stop and they get back to the first one and you're waiting the whole time because you want to get back to the story and the suspense is driving you on. John, the author of this gospel, is a master storyteller and he does that in this section. He has two stories going on and he alternates between them. He first focuses on Jesus, and then he focuses on Peter, and then he goes back to Jesus, and we leave Peter hanging, and then we come back to Peter once again. So it's Jesus in the garden, and then Peter in the courtyard, and then Jesus before the high priest, and then we go back to Peter in the courtyard once again. So the story picks up with Jesus going to the garden. They cross the brook Kidron, which was a dry gulch, except when it was raining and then it would have flooding waters through it. But at this time they could walk over it and they went to a garden. And by the way, during Passover, they were supposed to stay in Jerusalem, but Gethsemane was considered part of the precincts of Jerusalem. So they they couldn't go as far as Bethany as they had been going, but they stayed in the precincts that were allowed during the Passover. And it says there was a garden. And there's some that suggest that this garden was a walled garden with an olive grove. And that would make sense if they were spending the night there regularly to have a protected place. Perhaps it was a friend, a sympathizer who enabled them to camp out in a protected area with a wall around it. And there are a couple of verbs that indicate that it may be because it says that they, they entered into the garden. And then in verse 4, it says that Jesus, it says here came forward, but it, it really came out. And so it may have been a semi-protected place where they gathered, but however that may be, Judas knew all about it, because this was a a common place for Jesus and his disciples to go. And Judas led a band of, they're called here, soldiers and uh, servants and guards. It says in verse 3, soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And there's some discussion here about who these were. We know that some of them were the attendants, the temple guard, the, uh, the bodyguards of the, the temple and the high priests and so on. And these were Jewish officials. But it, the language that's used here could also fit the Romans as well. And it may be that the Romans lent some of their garrison, which they posted especially during Passover in, in uh, the Jerusalem area, uh, to quell any sort of problems or uprising that might happen when you got all of these fervent Jews together in one place. And it may be that they were tipped off and the Jews said, look, we're going to make a, an arrest, but we, we need some backup here so that nothing gets out of hand. And if that's the case, then, then John is pointing out the hatred of the world. If we have the Romans representing the Gentile world and we have the Jews... And then we have the one who's leading them was an apostate disciple of Jesus. Well, those are the, the representatives of the, the world in John's, in John's language that hated Jesus and opposed Jesus. And so Judas led them. And Jesus, throughout this, you'll find this throughout his, his arrest and his interrogations and his trial, he is the, the victim, apparently, but you will find that he acts like the one who is in control. 
So they come to him uh, after a man who is unarmed, and they're, they have their torches and their lanterns and their, their weapons, and they have a, a mass of persons to arrest this one man with a small band of disciples, and it's Jesus who acts like he's in control of the situation. And it says that he indeed was, in verse 4. It says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he was the one who knew what was going on, the only one who knew what was going on there, knowing all that would happen to him, it says here, came forward, but it's came out of the garden and said to them, whom do you seek? He took charge and he asked them what they were doing there. Whom do, they, whom do you seek? And they told him, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus responded to them and said in verse 5, I am he. Now, we have seen this a number of times in the Gospel of John, and we have seen that this is an ambiguous phrase because it is the normal way to identify oneself. And that's why the translators translate this, I am he. And that would be the kind of answer you would give to whom do you seek, Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. But it's actually just two words. It's not three. It's I am And that's why it's ambiguous. And in Jewish ears, they would hear that immediately as an echo of the divine name that we find from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, in God's announcement to Moses about who he was. Tell them that I am has sent you. And then in our Old Testament reading today, if you read through through Isaiah 41 to 55, you will find God constantly referring to Himself as, I am, I am He, I am the One. And so, this ambiguous phrase made a great impression on the crowd. You'll find that that's what happened. You remember in Exodus 3, when, when God presented Himself to Moses, Moses was dumbfounded by this sight. And God overwhelmed him with His presence and announced that He was the One who was. He is the One who is. And here we find when Jesus said, I am, they were taken aback. And it says here, parenthetically, it says, Judas, who betrayed Him, was standing with them. And then verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's what happens when you have in the Old Testament theophanies, when God appears, people are overwhelmed and they, they are often undone. And that's what happens here. They, he announces, I am, using the divine name. And these, these apparently brave guards that were armed to go out to arrest him, they, they drew back. And it may have been that, that some in the front drew back and it was a domino effect. We don't know how this worked, but... But they were, they were floored by Jesus' announcement of who He was. Now, um, you may recall that back in chapter 7, the, the temple authorities had sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And they came back empty-handed. And they came back and they said, well, the, the authorities said, why didn't you arrest them, Him? Why didn't you bring Him? And they said, no man has ever spoken like this man. And so these could have been some of the same temple guards that were overwhelmed by his teaching before, and now they're overwhelmed by his presence this time. And so they're floored by his announcement. And then he asks them again, same question, verse 7, Whom do you seek? 
And they said, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Then Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. Now, what has He done here? He has established that they are looking for one person and one person only. Twice they have had to say it with their own mouths. They're looking for whom? Jesus of Nazareth. And twice He has said, I am He. And so He then logically says, So, if you seek Me, let these men go. You have already said you're seeking of Jesus of Nazareth. I have already told you twice that I am He. I am. So let these go. And then it says in verse 9, This was to fulfill the word that He had spoken of those whom you gave Me, I have lost none. We just heard that last week. When Jesus was praying to His Father, He said, Of all those you've given me, the people that you've given me, I've not lost one except for the one who was destined to destruction, Judas. But I have not lost one. Now, the fascinating thing about this verse 9 is it uses fulfillment language. And fulfillment language is almost invariably applied to Old Testament texts. And you'll see this throughout the New Testament. This happened in order to fulfill what was spoken by God through the prophet Isaiah, through the prophet Jeremiah, whatever it might be. But here this fulfillment language is used to fulfill, to describe Jesus' words. So here the author is using another sort of ambiguous technique here to point us to the fact that Jesus has already said, I am, and so it's pointing to the fact that He is truly God, and now His words take on the level of God's words, and they are fulfilled just like God's words are fulfilled. Old Testament fulfillment language is applied to Jesus' words. Now, um, Simon Peter was standing there, and he had a sword, and this was a short sword, it wasn't a long sword, and he was having none of this. And so he was going to do what he could to save his beloved master. And so he drew out the sword, and he was, as you recall, a fisherman, not a soldier or a swordsman. And he may have just struck out wildly, but however that may be, he, his mark ended up being the high priest's servant's right ear. And the high priest's servant was named Malchus. Now this is, this is information that we don't have in any other Gospels. And John is providing us some, some luxury details here by giving the name, by giving uh, the, the side of the head uh, which was injured and who this was. And it says it is the high priest's servant, which may mean that this was a, a special, it wasn't just a servant, it was the servant. And he may have had a high up position in the, the court of the high priest. Now, um, Jesus then responded to Peter, and, and you, can, you can appreciate that this was a bold move, because there is this multitude there that is armed, and Peter is with a very small band, and he, he takes what he, he can, his, his small weapon, and he, he strikes out at the first person he can hit. But Jesus very forcefully says to him, put your sword into its sheath. And then he asks this question, rhetorical question. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? The Gospel of John, as we've seen, 
gives us additional information from that which we have in the other Gospels. And in all of the other Gospels, we have the prayer in Gethsemane. We don't have the prayer here. And it's not even called Gethsemane here. But we have an echo of that prayer. Do you remember in that prayer in the other Gospels that Jesus pled three times, and in all the other Gospels, He pled three times that something would be taken away from Him. Do you remember what that was? It was a cup. He pled that the the cup would be taken out of His hands, and that if there was any other way to do it without Him drinking of that cup, that that, that He could bypass that cup. And if we, we ask, what was that cup? We go back to the Old Testament, and we find in the Psalms, for example, Psalm 75, verse 8, or if you go to Isaiah or Jeremiah, there are various references to the cup. And this is the cup of the wrath of God. Now, the thing about this cup of the wrath of God was that it was destined for a certain group, and that was the wicked. And constantly, God is, through the prophets, is putting this this cup forward and saying, the wicked nations need to drink of this cup. And so now we understand why Jesus found this cup so abhorrent. Because it wasn't destined for one as pure as He. It wasn't destined for a righteous one. It was destined for the wicked. But now, after Peter draws his sword, he tells Peter, put your sword back in. Now we find that he is committed. He's received the answer from the Father. And the answer was, no, my beloved Son. The answer was that there was no other way to do this. There was no other way to fulfill God's plan of salvation of the wicked except that the pure and innocent Son of God made man would drink of that awful cup. And Jesus here declares that He is ready and He receives that cup as from His Father. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me to drink. Now, I always want to give Peter credit for bravery. This was certainly a courageous move on his part. And yet, it was mistaken. And not just because of the violence, it was mistaken because once again, Peter was rejecting God's plan of salvation. Peter was not going to let this happen, even as he said he wouldn't let it happen when Jesus first announced it and said that he was going to be betrayed and he was going to be handed over and he was going to be killed and he was going to be rise from the dead on the third day. And Peter said, no, Lord, never. That won't happen to you. And now Peter is still of that mindset and he's resisting the Lord's plan that Jesus had announced to them so clearly. And... Jesus Himself once again states, this is the only way. This is the only way. He had to drink of that awful cup in place of the wicked. Now, we find that after Jesus disarmed Peter, the band of soldiers, their captain, the officers, verse 12, they arrested Jesus, they bound Him, And they led him to Annas, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. 
Now, why do they lead him to Annas instead of Caiaphas? Well, Annas had been high priest. He was high priest from the year 6 to the year 18 AD. And he had been deposed by Pontius Pilate's predecessor. So the governor of the Romans, the governor of that area of Judea, but the Roman governor, had taken out Annas, and he had placed someone else in there. And there are several problems with that. One is that for the Jews, the high priest was a lifelong appointment. And so, for the Romans to come in and remove the high priest in the minds of the Jews, he would still remain as the high priest. But not only that, Annas was a canny operator, because after him, he had five of his sons, one of his grandsons, and right here, his son-in-law to be high priests. So we know who was the one still pulling the strings behind the scene. We know who was the real powerful one here. It was Annas, the father, the grandfather, the father-in-law, the, the high priest who had been illegitimately deposed. And in addition... In addition, high priests maintained their titles. Just like our officials uh, retain their titles, we can still speak of President Carter, for example, or President Clinton, because they were president, even though they're not currently. And so the, the, the titles remained. But he was taken to Annas, and then we're given a reminder here by the author. His son-in-law, who was high priest that year, was Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was the one, verse 14, was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient, it would be politically expedient that one man, one innocent man, should die for the people. Now, That's how that scene ends. Jesus in the garden and being taken towards the courtyard to the father-in-law of the one who said it would be expedient for one man to die. Now we go to the second scene, and it's Peter. And Peter, once again, let's give him credit, he followed Jesus, and he went with an unnamed disciple who had connections with the family of the high priest, some sort of a friend or relative of the high priest. And in verse 15, that disciple, unnamed, was able to enter in with Jesus into the courtyard. And uh, Peter had to wait outside. But then the other disciple went to the door, and the portress, the, the doorkeeper girl, was there. And apparently he spoke to the doorkeeper, and she let him in. But she asked him a question, and he was going in. She asked him this question in verse 17. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now that question is is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, she says, you also, which may give the indication that she knew that that unnamed disciple was one of his disciples. And she may be saying, well, I know he's one of this man's disciples, and I understand why he's here, but you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And also, the other thing about that question is, she, she asked it just like it's translated here, expecting a negative answer. And we do that in English as well. And that's how we would say this. 
you're not one of those disciples, are you? Expecting the answer, oh, no, no, no. Of course not. And so she, she gave him the easy out in the way that she asked the question. And Peter took the easy out. And he said, I am not. The same Peter who had just, in front of an armed multitude, drawn a short sword and struck out. The same Peter who had followed Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. This same Peter now says, I am not. And this this denial, verbally, linguistically, contrasts with Jesus' words in the garden. Because when Jesus said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And then they asked Peter. This girl asked Peter, you're not one of his disciples also, are you? And his response was, not I am. Jesus, I am. Peter, not I am. And as astounding as that is, if you have ever lied or shaded the truth to protect yourself from some perceived unpleasantness or possible harm, you can understand Peter. If you have ever remained guiltily silent in a situation in which you should have spoken up boldly, then you have nothing on Peter. If you have ever kept your faith in Jesus, if you're a Christian, to yourself in a situation that called out for a bold proclamation, then you should remember that you were probably just trying to avoid an uncomfortable conversation Whereas Peter was trying to avoid possible arrest and bodily harm. Well, after this denial, he tried to fit in. It was a cold night. The servants and officers were there around a charcoal fire. And Peter did the best he could to blend in with the crowd. And he was standing and warming himself. And that's how this second scene ends. And now we go back in chapter 19 to Jesus before the high priest, the high priest being the father-in-law of the high priest, the deposed high priest, Annas the high priest. And the high priest questions him about his disciples and his teaching. He was probably trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself as an instigator who was leading the people astray. And so he probably wanted him to say something about, well, I have this many disciples, and I've told them this in secret, and I've, I've given them this, these, these instructions in secret. He was getting, trying to get him to divulge some secret teaching to this, this group of, of apostate followers, or perhaps rebellious followers, who were going to cause problems for the Jewish nation. But once again... Even though Jesus is there bound 
before Annas, the, the power broker of Jerusalem, Jesus takes charge of the conversation. And he says, verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, by the way, he says, I have said nothing in secret. And you might say, well, now, wait a minute. Didn't he teach his disciples in secret? But the point here is this. He did not teach his disciples something else in secret that he did not teach in public. He went deeper. He explained more. But it was not like he had some secret plan that he was going to launch at some point that would be a surprise attack. No, he spoke openly, and then he taught his disciples the same thing in more depth. Now, And this, this comment may strike us as somewhat disrespectful to the high priest, because he basically says, don't ask me, ask them. But actually what Jesus is doing here is he is exposing Annas, because as much as we know about the legal procedures of the Jews in these days, Our knowledge is limited, but as much as we know, this proceeding was highly irregular. Highly irregular. It was not the responsibility in the first place of the accused to defend himself. The the accusers had to take the first step. They had to call witnesses. And if later practice was being practiced in Jesus' day, the witnesses for the defense got to speak first. And so the defendant did not have to incriminate himself. His witnesses got to speak first, and then the witnesses against him got to speak next. And if, that's, if those were the laws in Jesus' day, this is highly irregular. There were no witnesses. They had not looked for witnesses in Jesus' defense or even against him at this point. And so Jesus is pointing out, what you're doing is irregular and illegitimate. And what Jesus is saying here, Call the witnesses. You want to call witnesses? You have plenty of witnesses. I have spoken in the synagogue. I have spoken in the temple. I have spoken openly. Go get your witnesses if you want to do this right. But the attendant there, the officer in verse 22, when he heard Jesus' response that sounded to him disrespectful, he he slapped him or hit him. In verse 22, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck him with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And so once again, it looks like the the power brokers through violence are going to have the upper hand here. And by the way, uh, this, of course, is highly irregular, completely illegitimate, but it is a, a foretaste of what's coming. And once again, Jesus, in complete control, says, if I if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? What's he doing here? He's saying, let's, let's do this properly here. If, if I said something wrong, bear witness. You need witnesses. Bear witness about what I said, what was wrong about what I said. But if what I said was right, why did you strike me? Who's the one who is in the wrong here? So Jesus is is flipping the situation on them and demonstrating that they were the ones that were completely out of line. Now, Annas quickly ceded, and he quickly gave up. 
in verse 24, Annas then, apparently understanding that he was getting nowhere, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, his son-in-law. And what should we expect from Caiaphas, the high priest? Well, Caiaphas, the high priest, is already on record as saying what? It's better to sacrifice one instead of the whole nation perish. And now we go back to Peter. And we left Peter warming himself. We pick up Peter in verse 25. And what's he doing? He's standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, here, exactly the same thing that the girl had said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And they asked the question the same way that she had asked it, expecting a negative answer. And Peter once again took the easy out and said, not I am. And by the way, you probably have discovered this in your life. If you lie once, you will probably have to lie again to cover up that first lie. And then you will probably have to lie more times to cover up the second, and it will snowball. And that's what Peter found here. He maybe thought he could just get away with it. The girl gave him an easy out. Who's she anyway? A servant doorkeeper. But now somebody else asked. Apparently several asked. But he was now committed. He'd stepped on this slippery slope. And once again he says, not I am. Jesus twice, I am, I am. Peter twice, not I am, not I am. And then there was one who thought he could make a positive ID on Peter. And it turns out that one of the servants of the high priest was a relative of Malchus. This is getting personal now. A relative of Malchus, and he was there to see his relative's right ear get cut off by one of Jesus' disciples. So here we have an eyewitness, and he says to him, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And now the way he asked the question is not expecting a negative answer. It is expecting a positive answer. He's saying, I saw you in the garden with him, didn't I? And even though Peter had made a positive or was rather identified with a positive eyewitness He was committed by this point. He'd already made that decision a few questions ago. And once again, it says that he denied it. And then a rooster crowed. Just as Jesus had said a rooster would crow. Back when Jesus was announcing that he was going to die, Peter said no. I won't let that happen. And if I have to die with you, I will do that. Jesus said, No, Peter. No, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crowed. And he did. And it did. Well, that's how we end this section of the story. Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter. Jesus affirming, Peter denying.
And this is how this gospel leaves Peter for a couple of chapters. And if we were reading this for the first time, and if we didn't know anything about what happened later, we might conclude that Peter was going the way of Judas. But we remember something that Jesus said in His prayer to His Father. And we do the math and we take heart and we have hope for Peter because Jesus had said, of all that those you have given me, I have lost not one except that one who was the special case who was destined to destruction. And we already know who that one was. And it wasn't Peter. And so, if we can put these clues together, and if we can wait a couple more chapters, we can hold out some hope for this bold, cowardly, Follower of Jesus. And over these next couple chapters, we'll find that this Jesus resolved to drink of this awful cup. He did so not for the consistently courageous. He did so not for the entirely honest. He did so not for those who constantly maintain their allegiance and their integrity. He did so for people like Peter and for people like you and for people like me. And so if there's hope for someone like Peter, there is hope for us as well. If we will trust in the one who was resolved to take the cup of God's wrath for us. Let's pray. Our God, when we read about Peter, we don't condemn him. Because if we did, we would condemn ourselves. We understand Peter all too well. Because we've done the same thing. In one way or another, when it was the time to stand for Jesus, we have faltered. But we thank you, God, that Peter, as we do the math, is in that group of those who were not lost, but those whom Jesus saved and will raise up on the last day. And so we take heart, O oh God. And even as we identify with Peter in his cowardice, and sometimes in his boldness, we identify with Peter as those who need Jesus to drink the awful cup for us. And so we thank You, O God. And we breathe a sigh of relief knowing that Christ came for sinners. 
And He came to save us and to change us. And looking ahead, we find that He did that for Peter. And He'll do it for us. And so we look to Jesus once again this morning and cry out and say, Save us, O God. Save us, Lord Jesus, You who drank the bitter cup for us. We pray this in His name. Amen.